0: This evening's scripture reading is from John 6, verse 63. John 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. I sometimes struggle with my words. I have a hard time focusing sometimes, and... (laughs) has come to know as the baker's stutter. As you begin to uh, think about what you want to say, there's a pause to the point where people maybe want to try and finish your sentence for you. A little bit irritating for me when that happens, but that happens occasionally because sometimes the thought process just doesn't work the way that it ought to, or the brain doesn't communicate clear with, with the mouth. Sometimes it is that I don't think before I speak. I identify a lot like Peter because Peter was often prone to sticking his foot in his mouth. And there are things that I have said just in haste or in, uh, in uh, not thinking that have caused people pain. And I, where I, I realize that that's had taken place, I try and apologize. It occurs to me that our Lord knew exactly what he wanted to say on every single occasion. And he always said the exact right thing. I wish I had more of that, don't you? I think about the Proverbs writer in Proverbs, I believe, 25, verse 11, that said, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. It's a thing of beauty. It's a thing that you just want to sit and stare at. And maybe in those occasions where you've had times where you've just said the exact right thing, you go back again and again and again in your mind and you think, wow, isn't that true? And yet more often than not, I find that I fail either in thought or in word when those things come to me. The words of Jesus, Jesus knew what he needed to say and how he needed to say it. So much so that the simplest of, well, our children that we've just dealt with a few minutes ago uh, could understand the things that he was talking about. He could make those complex things very, very simple in his parables and casting alongside spiritual truths along things that we knew here in this life. But I think about the fact that when attitudes and when, worldly, or when words rather fail me, especially when there's ungodly attitudes or temptations and thoughts come into my mind, I'm always looking for things that are going to draw me nearer to the heart of God. I'm always looking for those things that are going to cause my mind to focus more on the things that I ought to be focused on, just by way of example. I'm a big believer in, whenever it is that you have somebody leading a public prayer, If your mind is kind of like my mind, practically, I can be with the person for about the first few words. Next thing you know, my mind is a thousand miles away. You ever have that happen to you? Sometimes, whenever it is, I find my mind begin to wander, listening to the phrases of each prayer, of the, uh, the person leading the prayer, and then just quietly to myself saying, amen, if I agree to that because that keeps my mind and my brain engaged. I want to pray along with somebody, but I have a hard time sometimes keeping my mind engaged, practically. When we talk about temptations and when we talk about ungodly things and things that maybe my mind doesn't need to dwell on or think about, have you ever thought about using the words of Jesus in order to help you through some of those difficult times? That's what this lesson and actually the one that's next week is going to deal with. Rather than doing one lesson of six points all together and spending a a long period of time on all of those, we're going to split them up, three and three. Three this week and, Lord willing, next week we'll do three again. Let's use the words of Jesus to draw closer to the mind and heart of God when things come into our lives that, well, we don't necessarily know how to deal with. Open your Bible, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Let's deal with the first one here in Matthew chapter 16. Here's the first one, in temptation, get behind me, Satan. In temptation, here's the words of Jesus, get behind me, Satan. You look at Matthew chapter 16, we go down usually to verses 16 and following, where the context is, Jesus there outside the region, sets. Assess- begins to ask his disciples, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the disciples give all kinds of answers, but then you find Peter making that great confession and saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus giving that blessing to Peter. What's funny to me is right on the heels of that, Jesus begins to tell his disciples from that time forward that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be crucified, that he was going to be raised the third day. And as his disciples are perhaps hearing this for this occasion, note what Peter does there in verses 23 and 24. Peter grabs the Lord, pulls him aside, and says, Never, Lord, will this happen to you. Lord, I will not let that happen to you in any situation or any circumstance. And note what Jesus has to say there to Peter. Verse 23, very emphatic. Get behind me, Satan. Literally in the Greek, Withdraw yourself until you slink out of sight, you adversary. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. A couple things to notice from this verse casually before we move on. Number one, the source of all temptation is the adversary, Satan, Satanas. The root of all temptation is putting your mind on things of the earth rather than on things of God, putting your mind on the things of men rather than on the things of God. And looking further at this, Jesus had the perfect words for this occasion. When Peter came along, you can recognize that this was already in the Savior's mind. There might be a way out. I don't want to go to the cross. And to entertain that and to cause that to, to fester in his mind, can you imagine how much more difficult that would have made it? Gethsemane was already difficult because the Savior prayed three times. Have a father. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go. But nevertheless, not what did he say? My will, but yours be done. See, the Savior had a will. The Savior knew had a want to, kind of like we do, well, exactly like we do. But the Savior knew that God's spiritual purpose for salvation in Christ would not be served if it was that he went after his own will and not after the Father's will. When we look at our temptations in our lives, and we realize that every single day we face choices that we make, don't we? We face the question of whether or not I'm going to focus on man's will or the question whether we're going to focus on God's will. Did you ever think that the words of Jesus are powerful in those situations? About how it is that you can say to yourself, get behind me, Satan. We already know James chapter 4 talks about resisting the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. I think we'd be hard-pressed to do better than Jesus, don't you? And thinking about Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and how it was that whenever he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, three times he answered, thus thus it is written, thus it is written, thus it is written, knowing our Bibles, but recognizing there's power in the words that Jesus spoke. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not thinking about the things of God, but you're thinking about the things of men. These are words of resistance. Resistance. You can physically say them out loud. I kind of keep a running ongoing dialogue. I can't imagine what Peggy and Jill think whenever I'm in the office and I'm just talking to myself. But as I'm thinking about those things, I want to keep my mind engaged in what's important. I want to keep my mind on the things of God. In temptation, you can physically speak the words, get behind me, Satan, and recognize those words are still powerful and then flee from that temptation. Don't linger on it entertain those things that are evil. Number two, turn over to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Here's the ungodly attitude or the situation. Point number two, in envy, jealousy. In envy or jealousy, what is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you? You follow me. The words are from John 21, verse 22. Picking up a little bit of context just for a moment. Envy is what we call the green-eyed monster. It is an intense, a seething kind of bubbling and boiling jealousy that's jealous of somebody because of success or relationships or appearance of relationship. All throughout the book of John, and see if you can't track it, it seems like there's kind of an unspoken uh, competition between John, who is described self, uh, self-described as the apostle whom Jesus loved, and Peter. You go through and you look at the different aspects of the book of John and where it is that you see both of these disciples together, and you're going to find kind of a little bit of a rivalry or a little bit of a competition. For example, who was the one that was reclining on Jesus' breast at the Lord's Supper? Well, it was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and Peter had to ask him who he meant whenever it was that he said that one of them was going to betray him. John was the one that was brave enough to enter into the high priest's courtyard because he was known by that household. John didn't deny Jesus. Peter was the one that, uh, that, well, I mean, that magnified his failure. John was there. He was not afraid and didn't flee like the other apostles, but he was standing there at the foot of the cross. John was the one that Jesus committed the care of his mother to there while he was dying on the cross when it was that they had heard that the tomb was open and there was no body there, John has to put in there that he outran Peter. He ran there faster than Peter did, and he arrived there first to see if Mary's account was true. I wonder if at this time here in John 21, maybe the disciples are still arguing about who's the greatest. If it's true, then they didn't really fully understand the mission of Jesus. and They might have thought, that John might have been the likely successor of Jesus and spiritual teaching and those things, but just uh, some some conjecture there. Look at John 21. You note the context that John three times in the context is asked by Jesus, Simon, son of John, do do you love me? Peter was asked that three times. And then after that exchange, it says that Peter was deeply grieved, and then Jesus begins, verse 15 to 17, to tell Peter what kind of death he's going to die. And Peter, as if to say, well, I want to get the focus off of me. Jesus, what about this guy over here? What about this disciple, the one whom you love? Tell me about his future. Tell me about what's going to happen with him. Peter, verse 21, turns around to see John following. and says, but Lord, what about this man? And Jesus says, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And note the result. The saying went out among the brethren that John was never going to die. John was immortal. Envy. Envy. Jealousy can rear its head in the most unlikely places. Those of you that are routinely on social media Chances are you've experienced this on more than one occasion. Where it is that you see perfect-looking people, and I say perfect-looking people, posting perfect pictures of perfect families and seeing things like perfect lives and having uh, somebody post all of their delicious recipes on Pinterest or or whatever it is, and, and you're looking at this and saying, why don't I have a life like that? Well, we're only seeing one aspect of that. That's the short answer. We don't see behind the pictures, uh, behind the their computer screen, and see the, the difficulties that those people face on a de- regular basis. We don't see those things, and so we just imagine that everybody else except for us has perfect lives. But the temptation is great on social media to envy other people and to look at other people and say, Wow, I wish I had what they had, and I'm going to hate this person for it. What do we do when envy creeps in? See, there's always the temptation to want to continue to poke at that wound, to let that fester and to continue thinking about how much you, you just despise this other person because they have what you want and you don't have it. You're envying. You ever thought about speaking the words of Jesus? If this person has a perfect life, what is that to you? Is that really going to affect your relationship with Christ? Jesus would say, you follow me. You know what I find is the more we keep our eyes on Jesus, the more we think about things that are spiritual in nature, Colossians 3, 1 and following, about how it is when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the less it is we have time to really look at other people and say, I wish I had what they had. Just the same way Jesus tells Peter in this situation, what is that to you? If I choose to bless this person over here and not you with uh, with, with material b- belongings or any of those things, what is that to you? If this person over here is enjoying great health and you're suffering because of something else, is that really going to affect your discipleship? Is that really going to affect you as far as your responsibility to Christ? What is that to you? You follow me. Last one this evening, number three. John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Here's the problem, here's the attitude discouragement. In discouragement, John 16, verse 33, in me, me, you may have peace. In me, you may have peace. Because Jesus says, I have overcome the world. When you get to John chapter 16, the action part of John is basically over, except for the passion, the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus. And as you find that Jesus begins these heartfelt talks, or this heartfelt talk here on the night before he's led away, as he's talking to his disciples, well, from the disciples' perspective, you can understand how they might be just a little bit discouraged. Let me rephrase, more than just a little discouraged. For weeks, maybe months now, the Savior's been saying strange things about how he's going to be lifted up and crucified and killed. As it is that he's drawn nearer and nearer to Jerusalem, you find that his countenance has changed and he becomes more solemn, more resolute. How it is that he stood on the hill opposite Jerusalem and wept over the people that wouldn't change because of the hardness of their hearts. And all of this culminates in this one night, John chapter 13, where they sit down to eat the Passover, and these disciples are arguing about who's the greatest, and you know what their teacher did? The most unexpected thing. He got up, took off his outer garment, girded himself with a towel, and began to walk around and wash every single one of those 12 pair of feet. And it is that's strange behavior for a rabbi, for a teacher, and especially for a king. He's been saying some difficult things to comprehend. You back up two chapters, and John chapter 14 begins, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. And so much so that this dialogue has been going on now for two chapters. In chapter 16, verse 17, the disciples says, What is this? What is this that you mean? And one of the promises of Jesus is this here in John 16, verse 33. These things I have spoken to you. These discouraged, difficult hearts. Jesus says, These things I've told you. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. There is a great amount of comfort in this verse for those who are discouraged. There's a great amount of comfort in this for those who are downtrodden and really thinking that, well, this life is not worth living anymore. There's comfort in the verse for the discouraged. If you want to circle in your Bible there in the in me, and write peace. Jesus says, in me, you have peace. If you circle in the world, and then write a dash and put tribulation, what he's saying in essence is, this world can throw its worst at you. This world will throw its worst at you, especially if you're a disciple Jesus, as we talked about this morning for 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. You're going to deal with remaining under the load of being a Christian, and deal with the the difficulty and the persecution tribulation. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those things are coming if we're living the life that we ought to live. But it is, Jesus says, the things I've spoken so that you can have peace. A calm in the midst of a raging storm because he says, I have overcome. And you know what the truth is? That in him The Bible speaks of us as overcomers, too. John, or excuse me, Romans 8, verse 37, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 1 John uh, 5, verse 4, this is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Yes, trials and difficulties may get us down. Yes, there may be opportunities where we spend time in the valleys, where we get discouraged and get, get brought down. But what those opportunities are when we have low points in our life are opportunities to say, I know in my Savior, I know in my Lord, I have peace. He is still bigger than my troubles. He still holds me in the palm of his hand. He still loves me and he has not forsaken me even though I may be in the pit. What we've got to remember is and speak. I would say, if if it's helpful, that my Savior said, in me you have peace. In Christ we have shelter, protection, comfort. His word can encourage us even in the darkest of times. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Brothers and sisters, by extension we have too. Words of Jesus are needful for us because we're following him. Because he has overcome all things. And there's a reason why we look to him who is the author and finisher of our faith as we run the Christian race. He's beat those hurdles. The truth is that we can too. I hope this has been helpful for you. It's helpful for me if nobody else. But it is, brothers and sisters, that as long as we live here, the challenge of being in the world but not being of the world will remain with us. But the more it is we can look to Jesus and see how he overcame and see what he did when he was discouraged and see what he did when he was tempted and realizing that all of those things made him a sympathetic high priest to where he can look down, he can see your plight, he can see your state, he can see your temptations and tell the Father, I've been there, I know what it's like. Isn't that a wonderful blessing to know that Jesus cares, that he knows and that he still loves us? Thank you so much for your kind attention this evening. If you have any need that we can help you with, if there's something that you're dealing with in your life that we can encourage you or we can pray with you or pray for you, that's why we're here. We'd love to be able to do that and love to be able to offer a hand to hold, a shoulder to lean on, or somebody to help us to bear those burdens. Whatever it is you're needing, won't you make it known as we stand and sing our invitation song?